Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The phrase was first used on December 15 of 1956 at the Louisiana Hayride. Louisiana Hayride was an event which was intended to feature budding artists in the country music industry. It was first of all a radio program, later became a television program. And on that evening, December the 15th of 1956, they had a very special guest. He had already budded and flowered. He was a growing phenomena. His name was Elvis Presley. The phrase was used after Elvis performed. It was used by the promoter of the event, Hunter Lee Logan. Hunter Lee Logan, at the end of Elvis's performance, realized that he was going to lose the crowd. There were more acts to come. So Hunter Lee Logan got up, and this is what he said. All right, all right, he said. Elvis has left the building. I've told you absolutely straight up to this point. You know that. He has left the building. He left the stage and went out the back with the policeman, and he is now gone from the building. Little could Hunter Lee Logan have realized that what he said that night impromptu into the microphone would become a cultural statement, a cultural icon for decades to come. He was attempting to hold the crowd. A writer in much more recent times, Dylan Jones, writing about that event says this, Logan was not, in fact, trying to get the crowd to leave, but to persuade them to stay and see the rest of the acts on the bill. After Elvis had given his final encore and left the stage, the crowd rushed for the exits, even though many other hayride acts were still waiting to perform. Logan didn't want them traipsing around the back, hoping to get a glimpse of the new boy. Please, young people, he continued over the PA system in desperation. Elvis has left the building. He's gotten in his car and driven away. Please take your seats. Later, the phrase would be used as a way to clear a room, to encourage people to leave. But this first time, that was not the case at all. He was trying to hold them there, to keep them from leaving. Elvis has left the building. But whether you live in 1956 or this year, it doesn't matter. When the focal personality has left, the show is over, no matter what the promoter may try. And it's right there. It's right there that we find the 8th century prophet Micah. Right there, he's trying to somehow get through to his people. He's trying to let them know that what they're participating in are empty acts, dry rituals, empty ceremonies, because God has left the building. He's not part of it any longer. 
And he's trying to capture the people, capture their attention, let them know what it is that's going on. In fact, what Micah is trying to communicate to the people of his day was actually communicated to the people of our day by someone that, well, wasn't Micah, a bit of a surprising source, Bono, singer for the U2 rock band. Listen to what Bono had to say. Religion can be the enemy of God. It's often what happens when God, like Elvis, has left the building. A list of instructions where there was once conviction. Dogma, where people once just did it. A congregation led by a man where once they were led by the Holy Spirit, discipline replacing discipleship. That was Micah's message, whether or not Bono knew it or not. Micah is reaching out to the people, a people who are a monotheistic people. They have one God. They have a way to worship. They have forms and rituals and ceremonies in which they engage, in which they participate to bring worship to that one high God. But all is not well. Things are not going well. They have, their, their ethical lives had deteriorated. Their worship had become an empty ceremony. People were hurting each other. People were despondent, in despair. God had left the building, it seemed. And so the question was, what do we do? How do we respond? In fact, exactly what does God expect from us? We go to Micah, that Old Testament prophet. I'm going to read it today actually out of the New Living Translation today because I thought the New Living Translation is, captures it especially well, this dialogue through the prophet Micah between God and the people. Micah chapter 6. As we come to Micah chapter 6, we are coming to a court scene. God is setting up a court scene. There's going to be a trial, and God is going to ask that the silent sentinels, those looming mountains who have been quietly observing all of Israel's history, you be the witnesses, says God, because I have a case against my people, and I think they have one that they're going to ask me about. So you watch mountains and see what happens. Micah 6, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Now, remarkably, God will make his case in the form of a couple of questions that are very similar to each other. In fact, they kind of repeat each other. But what's remarkable is that the questions that God asks show the pathos, the suffering of God's heart over what has happened. He's been forced out of his own building. And so he asks the people, Micah 6, verse 3, O oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. It's the question of the jilted lover. It's the question of the hurting 
rejected parent. It's the question that the mother asks her son, her teenage son, when he's gotten so angry and said, get off my back, mom. Just let me live my own life. And mom, dissolving into tears, says, what have I done to you? What have I done to you that you treat me in this fashion? And that's God asking his people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you that's made you tired of me? What is going on? I've had to leave the building over the way you're living your lives. What has happened? God's not done yet. Because next, he's going to actually unpack what he actually has done for them. He's going to talk to them about their history, the exodus from Egypt, those mountains. You were sentinels at that time. You saw this happen bringing them to the promised land, providing them with leadership. In fact, we'll read in the text, he reminds them of what happens between Acacia Grove and Gilgal. Acacia Grove was their last encampment before crossing the Jordan River miraculously into the promised land, and Gilgal is their first encampment on the other side. He's reminding them of that. So just after he has asked them, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? How is it that you're so tired of me? He then is going to say, actually, just so we're clear, here's what I've done for you. Back to Micah 6, verse 4. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember my people? How King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? God says, let me tell you what I've done for you. I've taken you by the hand as a child and led you through desolate lands until I brought you all the way to the land that I promised you. How do you throw me out of my own building? What have I done to you? Now the people, as I read it, the people respond. They have an understanding of God that says we can never satisfy His requirements. His demands are so high we can never meet them. We can never meet His expectations. And they appear to be angry about this. And as they begin to say, well, how exactly are we supposed to approach you? How exactly are we supposed to satisfy you? They start at a lower level and they keep ramping up their questions. They get hyperbolic. They get extreme. They start talking about the kinds of sacrifices that only Solomon could offer. And they end up at the epitome talking about the sacrifices offered by the pagan nations around them, which God had expressly prohibited as their, as their final question. Is this what you want? Is this what you expect? So notice what they do. Micah 6, verse 6. What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? God, what is it you expect of us? You're upset that this relationship is not working. What do you expect? 
There's no way we can satisfy your requirements. And then they start giving the options. It gets more and more extreme till finally they come to the end. Do you want us to sacrifice our firstborns? Is that what you want? Would that make you happy? Case closed. We've made our case. Made our point. God has left the building. Except except for the fact that God has an answer. God answers their question. And He answers their question in a way that is so simple, so clean, so pure, that it continues to echo through the corridors of time from Micah's day all the way to ours in 21st century Southern California. So to these people who press home their cynical query, God responds in Micah 6, 8, no, O people. Notice how he begins. They've been asking all these questions, getting more extreme. Is this what you expect? God says, no. No, O people. The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, I don't want all the ceremony and the ritual that you seem convinced that I want. Isn't it curious that that's what they're talking about? And God totally ignores that, just wipes it all out and says, I don't want all of that stuff. I want you. And I want you, your heart, in a way that can be characterized by three simple realities. Act justly, love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. 6-8 religion, I call it. We began last week with Pastor Presley, Pastor Adrian, reminding us in a cry for justice that there is still work to be done on that first one, act justly. Today we linger over the second one. To love mercy. Love mercy mercy. Two words. Two rather interesting words in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word that we translate love is a rich word. It's a word that means to have a loyalty toward, an affection for, a deep desire for the object of love. In fact, that Hebrew word is often to describe the act of sexual intimacy in a marriage between a husband and a wife. That's the word used here. In other words, God is saying, I want you to have a craving, a yearning, a desire, a hunger for mercy to experience it, to express it. Love. Second word. Mercy. 
What does that word mean? I want to take you to the words of Old Testament scholar Elizabeth Actemeyer and to what she has to say about this Hebrew word. It's a difficult word to translate. It appears frequently in the Old Testament. It's very rich. Here's what Actemeyer writes. The second requirement, to love chesed. The NIV translates to love mercy. It is possible to translate the Hebrew now with mercy, but chesed's meaning goes far beyond that. Chesed is covenant love, being bound together in solidarity with both God and human beings so that community is established between poor and rich, weak and strong, female and male, slave and free, alien and Israelite, and all care for one another in mutual respect, protection, and sharing. Hesed binds people together as one in the bundle of life so that God is not worshipped and obeyed apart from concern for one's fellow human being. That is the community solidarity that Israel is to love. Love mercy. So if you come before God feeling overwhelmed, What is it you expect from me, God? God's answer may be, I want you to love mercy. Not judgment. Sometimes we have to discipline, punish. That's part of life. He doesn't say love that. I want you to love mercy. So what might that look like? What might loving mercy look like? Do you suppose it might look like the spouse who knows he's right, and he is, and the spouse who knows she's right, and she's not, And he turns out to be right and says nothing about it. Might that be mercy? Do you suppose it might look like the parents? Parents with a child, high school, they have high academic expectations. The child brings grades that don't match the expectations. But because they love and are concerned and are wise, they realize the lower grades are not a result of a lack of effort. And so they celebrate what is brought home. Do you suppose that's mercy? Do you suppose God looks at that and says, I love that? Or is it like the old Puritan prayer? The Puritan prayer that said, I am forever wandering off and forever staggering home as the prodigal, yet thou art forever bringing the best robe. Is that mercy? Does God say, I love that? Or could it possibly look like parents? Parents with a child. 
young child, beloved child. And through some stroke of evil, they lose their child. Death. Devastated. On that surging sea where sorrows like sea billows roll, and yet a community gathers around them, supports them, loves them, says, we're here. You're not alone. Is that mercy? Does God look at that and say, I love that? Or maybe mercy looks like Todd Brown. Todd Brown on a flight from Omaha to Denver, Frontier Airlines, found a wallet. But he left a wallet in the seat, opened the wallet, looked, found the ID. Hunter Shamat, 20 years old, found his driver's license, his debit card, found $60 in cash, found his paycheck, his payroll check, signed, already endorsed. And Todd Brown thought, i got to get this back to him. He would later say, I remember what it was like to be 20. This is like losing your whole life. He thought, I've got to turn this into the airline. But then there was a twinge, and he said, I want to make sure he gets it. So he put it in an envelope himself, mailed it. When Hunter Shamat opened the envelope to find his articles, he found a note from Todd Brown that said, Hunter, found this on a frontier flight from Omaha to Denver, wedged between the seat and the wall, thought you might want it back. All the best. P.S. I rounded your cash up to an even hundred so you could celebrate when you got your wallet back. <laughs> Have fun. Do you suppose God looked at that Hunter opened that wallet, saw the smile on his face, and said, I love that because I love mercy. Or to stay with the airline theme. The story of Gordon McDonald and his wife, Gail. I, I actually want to share it with you in McDonald's own words. McDonald writes, my wife, Gail, and I were in an airplane flying to Boston. We were seated almost at the back of the airliner in the two aisle seats across from each other. As the plane loaded up, a woman with two small children came down the aisle to take the seat right in front of her, us, and right behind her, another woman. The two women took A and C seats, and one of the children sat in the middle seat, and the second child was on the lap of the women. I fear these were two mothers traveling together with their kids, and you know what comes next. I hoped they wouldn't be noisy. The flight started, and my prayer was not answered. The two children had a tough time. The air was turbulent. The children cried a lot. Their ears hurt, and it was a miserable flight. I watched as these two women kept trying to help and comfort these children. The woman at the window played with the child in the middle seat, trying to make her feel good and paying lots of attention. I thought, these women get a medal for what they're doing. But things went downhill from there. As we got towards the last part of the flight, the child in the middle seat got sick. 
The next thing I knew, she was losing everything from every part of her body. The diaper wasn't on tight, and before long, a stench began to rise in the cabin. It was unbearable. I could see over the top of the seat that indescribable stuff was all over everything. It was on this woman's clothes. It was all over the seat. It was on the floor. It was most, one of the most repugnant things I have seen in a long time. I watched as the woman next to the window patiently comforted the child and tried her best to clean up the mess and make something out of a bad situation. The plane landed, and when we pulled up to the gate, all of us were ready to exit that plane as fast as we could. The flight attendant came up with paper towels and handed them to the woman in the window seat and said, Here, ma'am, these are for your little girl. The woman said, This is my little girl. Aren't you traveling together? No, I've never met this woman and these children in my life. Suddenly I realized this woman had just been merciful. A lot of us would just have died in that circumstance. But she found in it an opportunity to give mercy. Do you suppose, I think, God was somewhere watching that and saying, I love that. I really love that. <laughs> because God loves mercy. And that's what he wants of his people. People who came to him, asking him, what is it that you expect? We could never do it anyway. No matter how extreme we get in our attempts, we can never satisfy the high God. And God says, actually, you know what I want from you? I want you in your life in your relationships with your families, your colleagues, your roommates. I want you to love mercy. What does that look like? Well, maybe John McCain helped us see that. The late John McCain in his presidential campaign in 2008 was asked the question by Time magazine, can you help us understand a little bit about your faith journey? And McCain told the story of that devastating, destructive war in Vietnam, of being taken as a POW, of being beaten, of, of suffering profoundly. He told the story of, of them coming in at night and binding him, tying him up with ropes, tying his hands tightly, tying his feet, but before that, wrapping it around his necks and pulling it tight until he said, I was in a position that was excruciating in its pain. Then dumped on the floor and left for the night. He said, into the night, a guard came into my cell quietly and undid the knots, loosened the rope until I could sleep. Early the next morning, before the camp awoke, the same guard, he said, came in, carefully tightening the ropes again. Didn't see that guard for a while, but then saw him Christmas time. 
He walked over to me and stood beside me. We didn't look at each other. He just stood beside me. And while we stood there, he said, that guard with his foot reached out into the dirt and drew the sign of the cross. And we stood beside each other and looked at that ultimate symbol of mercy. And somewhere, God said, I love that. Because God loves mercy. And He loves people who love mercy. You'll have a chance somewhere this week. You'll have an opportunity with someone this week to make a decision about mercy. In fact, somebody has said, I don't know who, justice is when we get what we deserve. Forgiveness is when we don't get what we deserve. But mercy is when we get far more than we deserve. And you'll have a chance to make a decision about that. I don't know where it will be. Maybe in the living room or the emergency room, the classroom, the dorm room, the boardroom. I don't know. But at some moment this week, you will have to decide do you love mercy? In that moment, if that's the choice you make, somewhere God will smile. Because by that one act of mercy, you will be doing two things. One, you will be fulfilling one of the grandest requirements of our high God. And two, you'll be making a statement. A statement that sounds like this. God has not left the building. 